Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. We appreciate very much all of you who are coming back and those of you who are listening for the first time. It's been a great response so far, and Brian and I are very much enjoying being able to have these conversations about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy with so many interesting people and with each other. So thanks for tuning in and making this possible. Today, our guest is going to be Dr. Ryan Westrom, PhD, LMFT. He's an internationally recognized psychedelic integration expert. For more than 15 years, his primary focus has been working with individuals and groups facilitating experiential therapy and integrating psychedelic journeys into healing and personal transformation. He speaks on a myriad of topics and leads experiential groups like DreamWork, Integration Therapy, and Psychedelic Integration Groups. He's also the author of the Psychedelics Integration Handbook. It is a very thorough book and a really cool exploration of many different avenues of integrating these experiences. Today we're going to take the opportunity to talk to him about integration, which is a topic we've covered before and will no doubt cover at length in the future, um, as well as many other topics. Um, it's a kind of a wide-ranging wide and fun conversation, I think, so we hope you enjoy. Dr. Ryan Westrom. for having me. I really appreciate it, Nate and Brian. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so there's a lot we could talk about, and I'm kind of uh, interested and curious to see where we'll end up going, because I don't have, uh, I don't think we need to sit to uh, stick to a set agenda. Um, a couple of things I know we're going to want to cover for sure is um, integration. It's one of the topics that, you know, we did an episode about, uh, about a few weeks ago, and um it's a, such an important topic, but I, I find that it's so ill-defined. So it's pretty exciting that we have somebody who literally wrote the book on it here to talk to us about it. Um, but before we get to integration, um, I think a lot of our audience is made up of therapists. The three of us are all psychotherapists. And I kind of wanted to get your take. This is going to be a broad question, so we can just dive in and uh, pick it apart as we go. Therapists considering kind of moving into this realm, moving in towards this realm of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. What do you think is sort of consistent with the perspective or worldview of therapy as we understand it? And what is inconsistent with that in doing psychedelic work? So in, in what ways are our skills and perspectives as therapists or often our skills and um, perspectives as therapists really consistent with psychedelic work? And in what ways do we sort of need to grow and maybe adapt or shift our worldviews a little bit to accommodate this work? It's a great question. Um, to lead with that, I would believe that one of the things that's fundamentally beneficial from a classical therapist perspective going into psychedelic integration or psychedelic therapist is the compassion, is the empathetic listening, is the innate 
um, seeking of understanding from the client. And also, you know, and just to be very elementary and almost kind of cliche is oftentimes psychedelic integrative therapy becomes like this Tai Chi move where you end up really leaning on many of the theorists, such as Carl Jung or, you know, the family theories and systematic theories, and we don't even know it. So I would encourage many therapists uh, like us to really like lean on what your foundation is. And that to me is something I think the new therapists coming in and just wanting to be psychedelic integration therapists or psychedelic therapists is to kind of now dovetail into what's a concern is they want to singularly focus on, oh, I'm going to be the psychedelic therapist. And I often consult people and say, no, you need a foundation. What is your foundation? Like for me, I'm, I'm a therapist that really builds their foundation on sexuality, on addiction work. And so I have a benchmark or kind of a launching pad to know that you can't just be a psychedelic therapist, right? So to answer your question in kind of a flow state is there's compassion, there's empathy that we're innately qualified. And that's important as a benchmark. But I would also encourage younger therapists or therapists that want to come into this work to trust in what they're also interested in. You can't be a one trick pony and say, hey, I'm gonna just be a psychedelic therapist. It's not that you do, aren't qualified to do it, but let's use a broad brushstroke of our skill set. Let's trust and know that we're not the expert. That's another thing in kind of closing that question of what's the concern. If we really are guides, you become in a sense, a metaphorical Sherpa for the client. The client is really looking for guidance, not so much this kind of therapeutic, hey, I'm kind of preaching on top down, right? It's not a top down model by no means. You know, what does, um, so kind of having that foundation, one way I think of it is, and I think about this when I do therapy, you know, psychedelic work uh, is similar in that what I'm trying to do is make sense of what um, the person I'm working with is telling me, like, I want to conceptualize or make sense of, 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 of what they're talking about, of what their experience is and in psychedelic work, making sense of that. And so are there any particular um, uh, practices or orientations or just ways of looking that help you make sense of, you know, what's happening in the room to kind of conceptualize it, to help yourself and the person you're working with? Yeah, make sense I, of it? I think Right, uh, Nate, I think we need to kind of land in concrete sequential. And so I really endorse what you're saying about conceptualizing it because the psychedelic world is in the ethos and it's healing, you know, on such a grand level. My immediate thing is to break it down into systematic purpose. I use a silly acronym that I kind of created, which is the PREP acronym. What's the purpose? of doing this medicine work, reflect on either what has happened in the past with medicine work. And if you're new to the medicine work, reflect on what are maybe your core scripts, what are your therapeutic histories, uh, set up some expectations. I think all work takes intention as we're very eloquently talked about in the past. What's the expectation? And ultimately what could be the potential, good, bad, or neutral? And I, Nate, love what you're saying, endorsing what we can find in concrete sequential experiences. 
let's bring the whole perspective of who this individual is. They are the expert of themselves. They know what they're walking into. So as the guide and the sitter, the support therapist, the integration therapist, whatever role that individual plays, they need to learn about the client, be humbled by them, be really open to what it is that they're bringing to the table. I love that perspective of really keeping in mind the, a more holistic framework or the whole client. I think a lot of therapists who are getting into this area for the first time uh, and learning about psychedelic integration or psychedelic assisted therapy, um, one of the one of the things that comes up is how, as Nate is saying, how different is this than traditional therapy? And I've heard some folks in the field, some leaders say, you know, it's not very different than what you already do. Um, so, you know, on, on the one hand, don't think of it as something that's a completely different skill set. It's it has a lot of overlap with traditional therapy. Um, and then, of course, it, it's true that there, there are some differences and there are some things that therapists uh, you know, need to keep in mind and need to get trained on and need to uh, have as part of their um, skill set or background if they're going to do this kind of work. I'm, I'm curious when, you know, you said you do some consulting, when, when therapists come to you who don't have experience with psychedelics, you know, what kind of advice do you give them about navigating the field, um, getting training, looking at resources, uh, I'm sure you refer them to your book, uh, but I'm just curious other advice that you might provide. That's a great question in regards to kind of feeling confident in this arena. I think confidence comes with being a seeker of information. I don't believe even at this level, we all are needing to be humbled by learning more, especially with the medicine. The medicine provides some innate wisdom that we have to be always on the edge, the precipice of learning. So I think right now we're in a wonderful opportunity to keep consulting with other practitioners of what they've learned, what they've seen. I think another important aspect of that question is, do I trust myself? Mm. One of the things is intuitively, does the therapist really feel safe to navigate these? Because there are nuances, as you just got done saying, that come across as spiritual emergence or psychotic breaks or they're unable, the client, you know, I've had many clients come back from Costa Rica or the like of other places where they're still stuck proverbially in that space. So to have the regard for the client to reassure them that they're safe and they still need to work on things. There's a lot of kind of like proverbial, like, esoteric things that just take some experience to be very transparent it it takes getting in the trenches feeling comfortable and also sharing with the clients that this is new to me or i'm experienced in this but i can't guarantee i understand it i'm going to need to consult let me go back to the leaders let me offer you some information and full disclosure brian and it you still have to lean on you know the medical practitioners, if, if they're stuck, there is value in seeking higher support. So knowing our place is important as the therapist. As you were talking, you know, uh, one of the things that struck me, strikes me as a similarity, a similar challenge 
in therapy and psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, and you talk about confidence and trust. And I think about the sometimes wide open space of psychedelic experiencing, but also sometimes the wide open space in a therapy appointment in which, you know, it's just you and another person and that person's experience. Um, and how I think tempting it can be to want to steer that person to safer territory, to like help do something for them, to rescue from that sort of experience that they're having. You know, I think that that comes up in therapy, but you know, when you see someone suffering, um, I think it comes up in psychedelic experience, but what the risk of that is that you're taking responsibility for someone else's experience. So, you know, what are your thoughts on navigating that in, in, in psychedelic experiencing when, when you're working with someone to make, to, because they're the author of their experience, they are uh, responsible for their experience. You're there to support them getting through it. Strikes me that that takes a lot of confidence and trust. And how do you interact with that without sort of like stepping over what I kind of view as sort of like an invisible line or a boundary? Yeah, I really appreciate that in the sense that it's making it their own, right? Allowing the client to assign a meaning to what that is. And also what was given to me as a proverbial framework from Stan Groff, which is let's make it bigger. So as you said eloquently, Nate, is not to, you know, problem solve it, take it away from them, hold it for them, you know, solution focused idea, but allow them to sit in it. And the key component in that, though, is the precipice of keeping it safe, right? Making sure the container is safe for the client to experience it. And often that's what psychedelic integration therapy is afterwards is there's proverbial things that are still cascading through the client, right? They're still absorbed with that kind of, you've heard it felt sense of the experience, or this reminds me of the experience, or often we hear it was as if I was back in it. And that's ample, fruitful expression of healing is let's embody it for a little bit, let them experience it, maybe go into a breathwork experience, maybe do some free association, but by no means, as you said, take it away from them. Allow them to proverbially, as Dr. Graf says, make it bigger, amplify it. And that's the caveat of making it safe, right? Yes, and that's uncomfortable, right? Like that is, that can be very uncomfortable. Oh, extremely uncomfortable. And yet that's where the fruits of all the labor of psychedelic work and all the preparatory beginning phases of allowing the safety. And, you know, to kind of dovetail back to the full question of what does a new therapist need to know, as Brian was asking, is you have to have the sense that you don't know everything and you're willing to give them that safe container. What you can provide them is safety, safety, safety. And okay, and oftentimes people will think, oh yeah, it's just talk therapy. Absolutely not. There's embodied energy still coming up. There's expressions that are sitting and lingering in their consciousness that they want answers to. And it is, I I love what you said, it is unsafe, but unsafe doesn't mean bad. Nate and I are both, Um, therapists that practice within acceptance and commitment therapy and what you're saying about making it bigger I've never heard that before but that is so at consistent and you know so act is kind of 
it's been framed very often as an alternative to symptom reduction psychotherapy mm -hmm. where you know traditional cbt is about taking away symptoms and an act we don't really believe in that we approach things more from an additive perspective like can you have this symptom, but then can you add in something? So maybe it's adding safety or maybe it's adding self-compassion or uh, maybe it's adding value. So I love that idea of, can we, can we make it bigger? That's great. Yeah. And how, what it looks like is, and it might, I, I've taken um, Stan's work and kind of explored it on my own cognizant, which is somewhat paradoxical, right? You would think, Oh, this person is, feeling these symptoms and oh like you said the cbt model or dbt is let's talk about it and get it out let's move it out well i want to move it out i have the same goal in mind or the same hope but it could come in an example of i feel something in my body and i ask them to make it bigger and shake it out or say what it's coming up right and paradoxically um lean into it as you said give give what they need and then offer something rather than just ignoring it. It makes me think of, uh, I haven't done this before. I always kind of wanted to have had the opportunity, but my brother for a number of years did, he had like an improv group he worked with. Um, and so then he'd tell me about it and uh, it was always very interesting to hear and seemed like a lot of fun. And one of the rules that they always had was, you know, if somebody starts a gag or a bit or does something like you don't ever oppose it, like you don't say no. Like there's not that energy of no, that you're blocking something. You like always find a way and the joke or the, the running thing is always find a way to do yes. And so you're always building by going with that experience and sort of enlarge, like, okay, we're going to go with that. And we're going to make, you know, maybe there's room if we make more space to make it bigger or go to a different direction, but you're not going to meet that with like this energy of like, no. Phenomenal. Uh, what a great representation. Ryan, I'd love to talk a little bit about your book, the, the Psychedelic Integration Handbook, which is uh, been, uh, it's been around, how, when did you write this? Um, I wrote it in uh, 2019. So yeah. in 2019, it came out right like on the tail end of 2019. I, I'd love to hear what inspired you to write this. You know, what, what brought you to this topic area? Um, uh, and and yeah, talk talk a little bit about your process of putting this putting this project together. I appreciate the question. So the book is really an homage to um, the younger self of mine. I um, was graced with psychedelics at the age of twelve, and had the grace of what I would call God or a higher source of inspiration to protect me, um, both with parental compassion and people around me. Um, books falling off the shelf. And I wrote this book directly for people that need something as a guide that might not be able to know where they're going or make sense of it. I personally had books such as LSD Psychotherapy by Stan Graf, Interpretations of Dreams, The Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. And then so I had all these instrumental figureheads or allies. And what this book was is really an homage to needing to make sense of psychedelics doesn't have all the answer but it has guideposts i often um metaphor it as you know we're on the path and there's a rock formation that lets me know that that's my that's my due north and this book is littered with integration exercises 
it's designed um, personally where it looks like a notebook. And so the book is white cover, make it dirty. I say you can use it, you can come back to it. It's 478 pages, I'm kind of long-winded and I didn't know when to shut up. But you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's chock full of things for the client to make it what feels right. Designed to jump in wherever they wanna jump in and really find comfort in the psychedelic space and not be intimidated by it. You used a phrase that I, um, I love. I, I use it all the time too. When I think of, you know, it, it, actually back up, let's, can, can you define integration for us as you would define it? Like, like that, that's actually the question I want to ask first of all, cause I think it can be a nebulous or um, it's a, it's a word that's thrown around all the time, but I'd like to hear you offer, you know, uh, how you would define it. The concise um, answer to that is taking two things and integrating it in the sense of putting them together. So uh, it could be a profound walk in the woods. It could be a psychedelic experience. It could be a beautiful meal. It could be a sexual expression with a partner. The idea is to take that experience and being able to interact with it in this body. One of the largest elements that I have about defining integration is as Brian said earlier, is a holistic approach of bringing it into the body, bringing it into the heart and bringing it into the consciousness. And when you do that, it has to be done through embodiment exercises with the mind, with the heart and with the physical body. That's obvious and somewhat kind of, I think, as you said, nebulous and esoteric. Now everyone talks about the mind, body, spirit, but it's a different thing when you actually do it. That's what propels people or holds them back is there's no action. And so integration is building upon what your values are that you've learned from this experience, creating rituals, and then having some sort of action. I believe integration is action orientated through movement, could be through the expression of thought movement, emotional movement, cathartic healing of the body. Integration is, is, you're right, a loaded term, but it can be broken down simply as interacting, putting puzzle pieces together, listening to your intuition. You know, what I'm hearing there is, okay, so I think typically when integration is used, it's sort of like, how do you integrate a psychedelic experience or psychedelic experiencing into your day-to-day -day normal consciousness and awareness? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not hearing you saying anything that conflicts with that, but I'm also hearing that it's also like psychedelic integration is a tool for integration of one's various parts of oneself. So it isn't simply integration psychedelics into your life. It's also using it as a tool to integrate, you know, head, body, heart, as you're saying, to integrate yourself with the context of your world and environment around you. So it's a, a integration sort of writ large, it sounds like. Yeah. And um, without getting hyper emotional, I think what you just pinned is my hope is for people to be um, kind to themselves, to integrate who they are, not to compare and contrast to the next. And we live in a culture right now in a world at large that's so threatening, be it you know diseases or opinions or thoughts, that what I'm attempting to do is make sense of themselves. They're on this journey and it's a, it, it, as many people as we have on the planet, it's still a feeling of isolation. And so psychedelic integration to me is a sense of loving oneself, um, making sense of people's traumas and hoping to 
get compassion and we are the ones that need to facilitate that and you know really propel that for their clients or themselves is be you know guides and compassionate love for oneself sorry i got off in my hippie um my my flower child personality but it's true it's really true i think it's the necessity of integration is learning to love oneself yeah. yeah, hippies, hippies are, you know, invited to use the, the front door here. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this it, it's it's really, you know, it's clear that there's a lot of heart in this for you, Ryan, and, and your work and uh, this this book that you've written and your work in integration. Um, I love what you said about action. I think that's also very act consistent. You know, we are uh, from an act perspective, always having an eye towards behavior change. And I think one of the things that people misunderstand about integration is they they think it's just talking about what happened. And of course, that's part of it, but it's so much richer than that. It's so much deeper. And what I love about your book is it really has a lot of depth and nuance and prompts to help people uh, grow or to think about themselves or to think about their psychedelic experience in ways that fit under that definition that you gave that are about moving into a new direction, you know, a new ritual, a new personal practice, uh, which is really hard to do in our, in our lives. So I love how your book really goes into a lot of depth. It has a lot of, pra- uh, you know, prompts and exercises, things that people can actually do um, as like a concrete action as a, you know, as part of their uh, practice of growth. Yeah. And I think it's fundamental, Brian, and what you're bringing up is important for me to um, reiterate is, Enter in integration is an entering into where you're confident and comfortable. I used the term earlier, confidence. So if you're not necessarily an artist and expressing yourself in an artist, I don't want you to start trying to, you know, pull out a Pablo Picasso art piece. I want you to, you know, maybe you're more linear, as you said, talk about it first, get, get kind of a launching pad of confidence in your integration. And then the book, and then my hope for integration is, you then broaden your comfort zone. You elaborate again to use an imprint holistic approach or right brain, left brain. I'm a left-handed person. I operate in more of the esoteric, but it's really been a challenge. And that was the beauty of writing the book is to use more articulation and language. So that's the encouragement for a client or a person playing with integration is get comfortable with what you know and then push yourself into the unknowing and see how that feels. I'm curious when in your work with clients, Ryan, or in your experience, what are, what are the, some of the common pitfalls that people fall into, you know, after a psychedelic experience The maybe the, the, the common things that you see people doing that where they get stuck or maybe they, um, they don't, they don't make the most out of an experience that happened. The first and foremost with um, 100% kind of reassurance is that it's not a magic bullet, right? And we often hear that in the world of psychedelics and it needs to be reminded because of all the the new renaissances, everybody's excited about it. I mean, people are coming out of the woodwork uh, to, to use it in hopes to heal what could be a 45-year habit or a trauma that's been buried for 15 years. 
So I always want to remind clients coming into psychedelics and going out of psychedelics that there's a sensation of this isn't a magic bullet and it does take some action, some compassion, and some deep patience. By me saying patience, it leads me to also remind people that one of the biggest pitfalls is I didn't get anything out of it. They come directly out of like, oh, I just spent, you know, 3,000, 4,000, whatever amount of dollars on an ayahuasca ceremony, or I went to an underground therapist and worked through some, you know, work. And, you know, I saw some pretty colors, but, you know, it didn't heal my trauma. Let it kind of cascade over you. Let it kind of wash over you. There's an incremental need to remind people, incremental baby steps of integration. Things can be profound. I've met with many clients where three months later, two months later, they're having these aha experiences because they saw something or they've actually put something together unbeknownst to it being taught to them or shown to them in the integration of the psychedelic experience, right? So it's really um, to kind of put this in context is releasing the death grip of expectations, right? There's like, you know, it's either financial death grip or expectations based off of what our cultural phenomenon is, is it's the best thing next to sliced bread and going, hey, be, be gentle. This, this might work. This might, you know, take some time. This might not be for me. Dare I say it didn't work for me and be okay with that. Another pitfall, if I may say, is the idea of uh, allowing themselves to be passive in it. And you heard me say action, and I'm a firm believer of behavior change through action. And so it's not a passive experience of, you know, often they say, oh, you just have to sit back and let grandmother ayahuasca tell you what it is, or, you know, the, the wisdom of the mushroom is going to provide. That's true. I'm in deep humility and respect for that but you have to do it in an active participating where there's there's motivation to do i love how pretty much everything of this work is a paradox it's like you have to try but don't try for sure <laughs> like you know you got to put in effort but you also want to be really chill like it's like everything's <laughs> like both things at the same time um, it's the best way to go about it because then you know you're, you're you're walking the neutral you're like oh it feels right Mm -hmm. You said that releasing the death grip of expectation. I like that, that phrase. And I think that, um, you know, we going back to a phrase I like a lot, you know, making sense of it, uh, you know, of the experience, um, you know, it, it requires this sort of broadening of a sense-making process, um, I think. And expectations are so they're built by, they're built in this state of mind. Like that's how we build them right? We build them in this, in this sober state of mind that conceptualizes the world a particular way. So this is what's going to happen. This is what I expect. I don't really know exactly how it's going to work, but I'm expecting this and that and other thing to happen. So we, we build that through the lens that we normally see the world through, right? And then the whole deal of psychedelic experiencing is that that lens is changed or removed or, you know, whatever that, however that magic happens. And you're not seeing the world in the same way. And so those expectations are, are, are often very much subverted. And I guess it's a question of, you know, do you let go of those expectations? Do you get caught with those expectations? How do you work with that? Are those expectations built? Around, I think they're often built around this really sort of like mental cognitive framework. How do you, how do you help people get and listen to, like you've talked about already, you know, their bodily experience, their emotional 
experience of that to help bring those along. Cause I think those also subvert expectations. Um, so yeah. How do you, um, did you I mean, can, I guess I would be interested if you could give us an example of, you know, a, a, like an actual practice that you might, you know, help someone with as they're kind of seeking to, you know, make sense of, of their experience. That's a great um, segue into what I call putting things on the shelf. So I think um, it becomes kind of an experience that I offer to both clients of knowing when it's time to put things on the shelf and when it's time to put things on the desk. And I do that again, because remember psychedelics are a lot of um, benefit by describing metaphors. So the metaphor of a shelf is, hey, I have all these things I want to address. I'm hoping to address, be it motivated intentions, or this is my intention for this work, but knowing that, hey, if I can address it, that's okay, and this is what's on the desk. So to sound kind of a little esoteric, but to bring it more into crystallization is, be okay with what's given to you, right? Often you'll hear in psychedelics is, you're given what you need, not necessarily what you want. And so helping the client go, okay, this is what you need, or this is what you want. Let's really paint the arena. Let's build the garden. Let's, you know, create the space for someone to know this is what could come. And let's have these expectations of knowing if this doesn't come, look at this opportunity that was placed on your desk. Look what was this opportunity that was like given to you yeah, you might want to heal and you had the courage and you were all ready to heal your trauma from when you were 10, more power to you. But look, they're trying to teach you compassion, you know, family love, appreciation for your addiction, which might need to be a byproduct of healing that trauma, right? So giving people that permission to see what, what, what is on the desk is also fruitful, fruitful work. It goes back to me to this, one of the biggest lessons that I've gotten from psychedelics and, and work in this area is that, you know, our rational minds don't always know the path to healing. And, and very often, maybe more often than not, they, they get in the way. And mm -hmm. so whatever, and that's true as a therapist, if I have too, if I'm too attached to, this is what a client needs to do to get better, right? I am likely going to be missing other things that may actually be way more important for a client to learn uh, along their journey. Uh, so this, you know, this idea of getting out of the way of being open to what comes up, this flexibility as a therapist to show up to whatever a client's bringing, it's hard to pull off as a therapist because it's, 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 it involves embracing uncertainty it involves embracing humility and I think as therapists, that's it's hard to to really stay there. We want to we want to help people. We want to believe that we know what's best for them, and we could you know help them with their problems. Uh, but often, too much of that can really get in the way. Right, and I, I kind of fall back on too is you oftentimes will watch a movie two, three, or four times, and on the fourth time, then the information is given to you that you didn't see the first time. And so not to minimize psychedelics, but kind of maximize the idea of similarities, right? Of, oh, wow, I finally saw something I never saw. And it's not ours to describe why, right? Who, who, who's to say why that was? 
I'm just thinking about the Rolling Stones now. I got the song. You can't always get what you want. Right. So if you try, sometimes you can get what you need. That's the that's the, this conversation's evoking the Stones for me. You can't beat it. See, Nick Swagger is quite quite remarkable. <laughs> so wrapping back around too, because um, so you got putting on the shelf. So talking about that, you know, I'm wondering. You know, I, I guess there's a part of me, you know, as uh, you know, as a practitioner who just really likes hearing, uh, you know, these metaphors and these different um, practices, experiential practices. What you know, because um, there is value in describing, you know, using words to talk about creating conceptualizations. But there's this metaphorical and experiential um, side or um, practice that I think is well in acceptance and commitment therapy that's a, a really big part of, of of that just practice of therapy is you know, you're trying to kind of get around this like real you know sense making mode of mind you know with metaphor you know with experiential practice and so i guess i'm just you know there's a part of me that's curious just for other other examples if you don't mind because like those are really i find extremely useful as a therapist i think they're extremely valuable as well because it gives us a chance to start to practice what it's like in the psychedelic space. And so I, I'm more than happy to give examples, but before giving examples, I want to endorse why it's important. And why it's important is for many people, no matter how accustomed you are to the psychedelic space, you need a reassurance of being in like, oh, this is one foot in, one foot out, right? One foot in reality, one foot out. And so some of these experiential exercises are preparatory and integrative for someone that's new or someone that's preparing. And often I use the idea of let's walk into the ocean, right? And here's one of them. And your, it's your consent to feel how far out you want to go, how deep you want to go. So if you imagine a body of water, be it a lake or an ocean, I often will invite the client to start to imagine how, where their comfort zone is, right? So part of, not to suggest that we have the capacity or control to know what our comfort zone is in psychedelics, but I want them to feel safe again. Remember, this is an overarching idea of let's, re, let's build safety. So a lot of these metaphorical exercises are to re-endorse safety and to practice what it's like to be in a non-ordinary state of consciousness right and then in an altered state and so by doing these really guided imageries these imaginations these active kind of engagements the person will go okay and you'd be alarmed at what percolates up when they release into that unconscious right when they start to let their active imagination or their creativity they'll go oh this is what it's like they'll be able to harness the information without having to like make sense of it. Another exercise that I often do is inviting in the allies. I'm a firm believer. My book was designed and dedicated to our ancestors as well as our descendants, because far from me to ignore the beauty and the homage of what people did to carve out what we have today and far from me to suggest that there isn't descendants that are going to be a lot wiser than I am. And so I spend a great deal of time, Nate and Brian, on 
instructing clients and myself to really dive into who are your allies? What do they represent? What do they provide you as well as what do you provide them in a symbiotic way, right? And that, that sense of bringing allies into it, both spiritually or physically is like fucking amazing because you're safe again. You're like going into these experiences and going, wow, there it is. Mm, I love that. Yeah. It also, you know, brings up the interconnected nature of, of our existence, Mm -hmm. right. And Mm -hmm. helps maybe remind us that we're not alone and we're embedded in all of these systems of people and um, culture communities. So that we, it's so easy to forget in our individual individualistic culture that we're, we're embedded that way. Yeah. It's fantastic. Do you see it with clients longing for that as well? I think now specifically no more than any, isn't it, gentlemen, that there's this time where people are thirsty for a reassurance of culture, even with all the, you know, pandemic and stuff. It's like we, we want to really reconnect, no? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's so much. But that was, I mean, this is a whole rabbit hole. <laughs> because I think this was a tremendous problem before the pandemic, this, um, you know, isolation and disconnection um, and thirst, craving for some genuine expression of, of, of culture and community um, in, a, in a society that, in my view, isn't very well built for that. It's not built for community. It's not built for um you know, for, you know, sort of a thriving participatory culture, sort of like this mass culture that you could, can consume. Um, but I think that it um, isn't built from the ground up and it isn't participatory. And it's something that there's a tremendous thirst and hunger for um, in a way that I don't think a lot of people can even articulate. Sure. And that's, that leads me to a little bit of a tangent public service announcement around psychedelics and what we learn is um, I often, um, I had an experience where I saw myself, what I didn't know was myself in a straight jacket. And then I saw myself hanging like in meditation from a tree. And it was weird because what ended up happening is I asked the, the, the spirit that was hanging from the tree, um, what makes you enlightened versus me considered psychotic, right? And so I'm in this psychedelic space and I see an image of myself. And the image of myself says, I just simply choose wisely who I share my story with. And that's something both to answer the pitfall question that we spoke about earlier and what you're talking about now about the information that's sometimes downloaded with psychedelics is it might not be prudent to talk about because we're still trying to make sense of it, right? So part of the integration exercises is going shit like I'm not going to tell everybody and their brother because even today having a book written having a clinical psychology degree having a doctorate having a license I tell people this information and they're like what whereas in other communities they're like oh that's cool that's respectful I can hear it so you really I would encourage and highly endorse as a public service announcement being mindful of the expression of it especially if it's not necessarily formulated yeah, I see that. I see that a lot with because um, where I'm at in my practice, I don't do um, a whole lot. Like I don't market specific, you know, uh, integration services. But what I have learned uh, over the last few years is, you know, I do. I like anybody else. You know, I do a, you know, an intake. I do a thorough drug history, and so I ask um, 
you know, questions about, about that. And um, what I t ask about, and I'd always do ask specifically about psychedelics, you know, I ask in this really open inquiring way and give this invitation for people to talk about. And you can just tell these, their experiences that people are, have been important and that they want to talk about, but they're a little surprised. They're like, well, am I supposed to talk about this? Should I talk about this? Like, are you going to just tell me I shouldn't do drugs? But then they get to talk about it. And it's really this beautiful thing because they can have an expression of this experience they've had that has been important to them, but they don't, they haven't felt safe or they haven't felt like there's anybody they can talk to about it without being sort of labeled crazy or druggy or something like that. And, and these are really important experiences that people have, but being able to um, discern who you should talk to about it. And then also having the availability of places that you can. Right. Right. It's really, isn't it fundamental? And I'm honoring people in that space. You have to, you have to just kind of, again, going back full circle to that trust in the uncomfort, right? Let them kind of feel you out. Relational therapeutic relation, right? Is really embedded in that. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing up that advice, Ryan, I, I, about being mindful of who you share experiences with. I, I wish I had that advice a long time ago. Um, uh, you know, something about sharing experiences can can be very harmful, and there's so much stigma and and judgment that people can encounter. You know, it, it, but it's hard because, as we're saying, like do, part of the nature of having a download of information is, you know, you want to share it. It's maybe exciting or interesting or helpful, uh, or it's confusing, and you want to process it with people. And, you know, if, if you're not careful about who you, you know, who you go to with that sort of thing, uh, it can lead to devaluing of the experience, right? People might share and then get met with judgment and then believe, oh, I'm crazy for thinking this way, or I need to, I need to forget about this. I need to minimize this. And they, they wind up like, that's, that's how they deal with it they just kind of like lock it away and 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 sh try to shut the door on what could be um real fodder for growth mm -hmm. yeah and i totally agree with you i dodged that bullet when i was like 15 and told my mom the microwave was talking to me and she's like what <laughs> <laughs> so by the grace you know i had a mother that was a little bit more she was kind of the instrumental teacher of holding space she goes what's that like rather than like lock me away and send me to treatment i was like uh it gave me permission that's awesome that, that i kind of would like to dive in here because this is really interesting to me it's like we live in a world right we're and we're talking about you know psychedelic assisted psychotherapy right we're all trained credentialed blah 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 you know and so it's all this like above board legitimate um uh, button up type thing. Um, but you know, most psychedelic users are just tripping. Like they're just getting some mushrooms from somebody and tripping the vast majority of people who are using psychedelics and in including, uh, very young people, right. Such as, right. such as yourself when you were young. And so how do we, you know, interact with that? Um, cause I feel like, especially in, I think among professionals, there's a real hesitance or a fear of like, well, I don't, you know, this is, this is a thing. There's, there's still that internalized stigma about it. Like this is bad. It's really bad for kids and you should have to steer away and don't do drugs. Okay. But like only if it's over here like this, um, but you know, people need information 
and people need to know, like, so I think it's, it's, how do you engage with this, you know, as a professional, um, um, you know, via, is it via harm reduction, um, you know, psychoeducation? Uh, I think these are things that, you know, obviously I, well, I'm sitting on a podcast talking about it because I think there are things that need to be talked about. Um, but, you know, how do you navigate that? And how have you navigated that over the years with the, the stigma that does, um, you know, permeate the topic? It's better now by unbelievable amounts, but it still exists. Um, yeah. How do you how have you tended to navigate that and sort of disseminate and help educate people? Um as the intersection of what I do for a living, being a sex therapist and a psychedelic integration therapist, it's like uh, it's like a hotbed for a loaded conversation that is very full of taboos. And as a father and a husband, my wife and I, um, a father of three, I have a 16-year-old daughter, a six-year-old daughter, and a two-month-old son. I'm um, learning to navigate. I'm learning to also be a, a student. So. You know, my 16-year-old, she's teaching me stuff, and my wife and I were, were humbled by asking questions. Be curious, I think, not just as a therapist, but as a professional, as a parent, as an adult living in our culture. Shaming isn't going to work. The shame base or the fear base of Nancy Reagan's and D.A.R.E. just didn't work for me. Uh, I lean on... Uh, really creating conversational, accessible, accessible conversations. So speak to them at the language, speak to your clients at the language of their education. I endorse highly Nate harm reduction. I endorse highly psychoeducation, foster information, give enough information that you're not trying to control them, right? Be it, and this is, you know, a Tai Chi move of both clients or children. I spend many times with workshops with teaching parents to you know really help them destigmatize it right they're sitting there drinking their face off and saying don't drink right or hey smoking pot and don't smoke pot it's helping them live in like accordance to what they say and what they do i think is a huge element of kind of we're talking about how contradicting everything is or how paradoxical we have to live with integrity ourselves to provide the same information that our clients are asking for. Authenticity comes to mind, but you know, to, to really encapsulate it in a nutshell is being a seeker of information as well, allowing these people to, you know, be open to ask questions, foster some difficult space, right? Foster some significantly difficult space of like, whoa, I just heard that. You know, I can't tell my 16-year-old, my wife and I, I can't say, hey, put a blindfold on and go sit in the basement. That would be, <laughs> they want to go see a fish concert too, you know? Right. It's like, what's our limit, you know? Watching our control and power, I suppose, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, you know, the, the importance of curiosity uh, and openness jumps out you know at me there and and the word you used a few times which is one that i uh, always hone in on um because i think it's so important with this space is the the idea of the idea of control um and uh, you know i kind of wouldn't mind going into that idea a little bit because i feel like this control um i feel like this is a real mindset that um psychedelic experiencing kind of cracks open a little bit i think that we have 
we want things to be a certain way. And it, it relates back to the conversation we're having about expectation. You know, it's like our mind wants to be in control. I want to understand what's happening. I want to go this way. This is how it should happen. This is how you should behave. This is how I should behave. I want this outcome. Like, you know, we're freaking obsessed with control, right? I think that's like a signature aspect of waking normal consciousness is obsessed with control of the world around us. Um, and then, you know, psychedelic experience comes up and <laughs> no, <laughs> right? That that's offline. Um, and I think it gives us a really integrating that I think is a tremendous aspect of the, of the psychedelic experience, but it then comes up everywhere uh, in our desire to, you know, control how other people behave, control how other people use control. Um, and, and I think, psychedelics can be, I don't think they necessarily inherently do, but they can act as sort of a, a solvent for that um, mindset. And I wonder if, you know, what your thoughts are sort of about on that sort of dynamic of curiosity control and, um, and social control. Yeah. Uh, top of mind thought is that's one of the biggest Achilles heels. I think psychedelic work has shown me is people that have hypersensitivity or hyper awareness of control traditionally have and this is a little bit maybe of a digression of the question but they do have a tendency to have a harder time with the psychedelic experience because it either allows in too much fright fear or they're worried about what could be perceived as a bad trip or a challenging experience and the achilles healing control is that they're not allowing in what could be fruitful information both in expectations as you said or outcome and uh, for lack of other terms, another thing that kind of stimulates when you're talking about this is what, what's the motivation of control? Here we are, and to be very uh, um, maybe nihilistic is we came here, we're here, we know we're here for a temporary bit. What an awesome invitation to prepare to learn how to die. So again, to go down a different rabbit hole, and thank you for the courage to do that, is psychedelics are really, and that's how I, uh, you know, invite people if they're struggling with control maybe we need to turn it on uh, a preparatory way of learning to, to prepare for the next mystery and again it might sound very um nihilistic or esoteric but fuck if you're holding on to control and you want to solve something or heal something well let's do that so again making it bigger nate and brian lean into it and say well let's channel it let's if you want to control something, why don't you practice dying? Why don't, why don't you practice the art of surrender? Because at the end of the day, you're 80, 90, 120, or 37 in a tragedy. What are you doing to prepare yourself for that next experience, that mystery? I know I went somewhere offline, but it, it, it's necessary when it comes to talking about control. We can harness it. It just needs to be harnessed in, in an appropriate way. Yeah. It is absolutely necessary when we talk about control because that's the ultimate truth, isn't it? Like, um, like it's just there. Um, it's there <laughs> no matter what. And I think control is sort of like often a trick we try to play on ourselves to convince ourselves that it isn't. Right. Right. And it's, it's really, it's, it's defense mechanisms and we could go into all the nuances of what the defense mechanisms are, what the coping strategies are. Right. And we could, kill a dead horse by doing it but ultimately it's it's an it's a lesson and it's an exercise of okay 
ego, disillusion, whatever we want to say, you know, there's so many catchphrases nowadays, but at the end of the day, it's just like bowing to like, okay, this isn't mine to own. Yeah. That made me think of ego dissolution and, and, and that idea, because it, it, at least in my, my travels, uh, that seems to be something that a lot of people are interested in having, or they're trying to seek that experience. I really want ego dissolution. Um, and it's, it's almost like I think of it like there's some intuition that letting go and that experience can be helpful. Um, but then, of course, it's like, be careful what you wish for. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people actually fully understand what that's what that term means. It's something that clients ask me a lot, like, what is ego death or what is ego dissolution? Uh, how do I do that? Why is that helpful? Um, I'm curious why, you know, anything more you want to say about that and why you why you think that that's become like almost like a hot topic within psychedelic communities? Why is that the thing that it seems like, I don't know if you've had this experience, but that a lot of people seem to be after. Yeah, uh, ego dissolution is quite a common theme or they're curious about it, right? It's again, I, I mean, it's full of nuances of what I think fear of missing out. I think the idea of what the, you know, transcendent is outcome, right? It's like the next stage of what their evolution is. It's, it's littered by many different wonderments of why we're looking for it or why we're seeking it. And I have no judgment in their seeking of it. I think it's a little bit, as Nate said, control and power. But at the end of the day, again, it's, an, it's, it's a spiritual bypass. And I haven't used that term in our conversation just yet. But remember, like some of the pillars that I really want to advocate for is action living embodied in this temporary state that we have the gift to do until I'm like jettisoned onto some Klingon planet far from here. I want to enjoy this. So one of the questions I would ask a client that says, Hey, I want ego disillusion. I go, okay, great. That's wonderful. Again, what's the purpose and what might we be bypassing? What aren't we comfortable with right now? You know, by product, the psychedelics are going to help us, but it's not ours to say I want. I, I just, I have a hard time and I bow to the experiences of the compounds to say it will tell me. And, um, you know, without getting lost in the meandering desire of order of what this means to us, what ego means to us, I, I, I just would say to the person, what are we, what are we avoiding? And spiritual bypassing is that it's, it's a sensation of, I want a passive experience to not do the work from my vantage point. I'm limited in my expertise. I'm limited in my knowledge. Many different, you know, religions, spiritualities will say others, but my term of spiritual bypassing is we are trying to allow something. And that's my biggest concern. That's my worry with psychedelics and this new, is saying, I need this pill, I need this experience, and it's gonna take away everything, it's gonna make me better. It's like getting a gym membership and never fucking going. <laughs> it's like, let's do some active work, and it's not just to endorse psychotherapists to hold space for integration or preparation, but it's to offer a fruitful ground of really going, hey, I need to do a little bit of work on this. You know, and I, I, I wanna mix up a couple things you said too, because you're saying here like, uh you know, doing the work, which of course is, I think, you know, really important. Like that there are things to integrate that's more than, than simply just having the experience. Um, and then you kind of mentioned too, that there's a 
rather than driving for this like ego death type experience, which is really like, well, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is the thing that's going to sort of release me from this sort of like bondage of my past. And, and, you know, and then I can be one with the universe. I mean, that sounds great. (laughs) And uh, many people will be blessed with an experience that um, is comparable to that, but there's like it happening versus they're like driving for it. Um, And the path to that, if that is not necessarily straightforward or what you think it ought to be. And, you know, this, I wanted to kind of subvert this. So like doing the work, of course, but then at the same time, a lot of times the work is, and I think that this often isn't talked about enough. It can be joy and fun and curiosity and wonder and beauty, you know, like that's sometimes, you know, the Royal road to, to that. Like, it's not just like slogging through our, our, our traumas all the time, which I think we can be really hooked on, especially when you come to like from a, a therapeutic mindset, it's like, Oh, we have to work through all this stuff. Like it's drudgery. Um, but sometimes th- that might not be it either. It's not necessarily that kind of work all of the time. You know, sometimes it's allowing ourselves to just laugh so hard that it releases some of that stuff or to really connect with curiosity and wonder. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, it's a double down of endorsing both the recreational use and dare I say, kind of the liberal kind of experimentations that aren't necessarily right, Nate, therapeutic, (laughs) Mm -hmm. where you can just kind of go see the wonderment of the woods or be taken away by a music, right, that you're fond of. And I would completely agree. I think that's, again, what Brian was alluding to with the, the ego death is we're trying too hard to make sense of it. And sometimes there it's okay not to make sense of anything. It's okay to just be embodied by it, experience it, do it responsibly. Don't get me wrong. You know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of curious to me. And, you know, I read Carl Hart's book, drug use for grownups. And, you know, I, this idea of, uh, you know, Nate and I did, did an episode about, you know, uh, the drug war and all our biases, but it's, it's curious to me how, why recreational, why that's a bad word. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost like we're not allowed to say it's a, like, I want to get high or I want to have fun. There's something wrong with that. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this is the forum for it, but I would wonder from you guys, is this, do you think it's an overcompensation from our culture to, to show like we're being prudent or it's overly scientific. So we don't lose the capacity of the traction we have. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that might be, that. that's an interesting, like, this isn't just for fun. This is serious stuff. Like this is medicine, right? Like we're not, we're not out to have a good time. Like we're healing, you know, right. and, and like, whatever. <laughs> right. I mean, I think, I think there is an overcompensation there for sure of like, we have to like really, you know, have our ties on and make sure that this is, everybody sees that this is legitimate. We're not just like hippies out here trying to like bring peace and love everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's why I keep cutting my hair shorter so I can prove to myself and my clients that I'm legit. (laughs) 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 But, but to get, but to get back to the point, it's that idea of being, you know, respectful. I think ultimately is respecting the medicine and giving the appropriate listening to what the client's asking to feel reassured also not being so controlling and like you know at the end of the day we're 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 given this opportunity not to we're not trying to fuck it up i don't believe anyone's trying to like intentionally like you know drop 
acid and Kool-Aid and run around like it was 1960. I'm, so I'm curious, Ryan, your, your general thoughts about this psychedelic renaissance that we find ourselves in, you know, uh, over the last five, 10 years, things seem to be moving at an exponential rate and how uh, psychedelic assisted therapy is becoming more popular, uh, likely to become available, uh, you know, within a couple of years. Um, what, what are your thoughts about where things are going? What, what concerns do you have? What worries you about this whole movement? I think um, I'm super excited about like decriminalization of nature, the idea of what MAPS is doing as a participant of that program, the idea of what we've been given through the idea of Zendo Foundation, where they go to, you know, festivals. It's, it's alarmingly respectful and, you know, about time. And like with everything, there needs to be a constant conversation and a constant reframing and a constant alignment of where we are now and what you asked brian without sounding um you know prudent or by no means being the gatekeepers also knowing when to put it down Mm. right so recently in my own practice and in my own personal experiences knowing what sobriety looks like and knowing what uh the idea of oh hey i don't need medicine to facilitate or you know, propagate something because by no means psilocybin or MDMA is going to be similar to the cannabis movement of the nineties and early two thousands. You know, it's great that we have legalized cannabis. I think it's fundamentally amazing. And yet, you know, taking psilocybin isn't an everyday experience. So that's what leads me to say, knowing when to use it, when not to use it. I think that's one of the biggest conversations I think that we're not having on the forefront we're so interested in getting these doors open that more harm reduction more psychoeducation and more prudent responsible engagement with it is going to be necessary and clients ask that a lot they want to know how do you use this and you know we've got the clinical trial model where you've got two or three big experiences but that's an artifact of the 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 nature of research we don't know what, you know, clients want to know, should I do this once a week, once a month, a couple of times a year? How do I fit this into my lifestyle? And I, I don't know if that's kind of what you're referring to is how do we on a long-term basis use these uh, substances? Yeah. And that's a great question. It's somewhat of what I was alluding to. And I know certain protocols are in place. And as you said, certain conversations are being had. I personally think it's important to make it your own. Right. I think it's important to make it your own and know what the magnitude of it is. In my book, I talk a little bit about, you know, in a therapeutic way, if you're just getting used to it um, and it's not made up, but I do believe every quarter seems prudent. You know, I think anything earlier, if you're doing it therapeutically or trying to work on something, you need to do enough work in between sessions to be able to incorporate it, integrate it. Um, but as we're saying throughout today's conversation, there's a lot of paradoxes. I think putting it down is super important to see how your body can handle it. Depends on the compounds. I know after throwing up with ayahuasca, I'm like, okay, um, thank you. No, thank you. I, I might like walk away forever. And then you come back to it when you feel right. So listening to your intuition is what I ultimately say is what's your intuition. 
have a dialogue with professionals like yourself and say, hey, let me, can we talk about this? What's coming up? Yeah. What's, it, like, what's the desire? Yeah, a dialogue. Like, I think that's the way to think about it because, I mean, I think the temptation towards paternalism is tremendous. You know, it's like, because you talk about this and then it's like that discomfort comes up. It's like, well, but what about people, you know, what about the kids or what about people who have this sort of like, what are we telling people? You know, like there's some sense of like, well, we need to give answers. We need to tell people what to do. And I think that the dialogue of having a discussion with people is really important, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't th- like there's not, those answers don't exist. You know, and I, I think, and I think I've told this story before on here, but like, when I first, I was in college when I started using psychedelics and I look back and it's kind of amazing because what happened was, you know, I had the experience and was just blown away and curious, like just completely like, wow, that's not what I thought. Cause I was at a phase in my life where I was drinking too much party and, you know, being a college kid and I had this experience. I'm like, well, that's not that at all. And became super curious about it. And myself and a, another friend and a, a kind of a group of friends, we started like, it became this very ritualistic observance that completely organically arose completely organically. Like we didn't plan it. We didn't know, we didn't go research it. It just sort of happened. And it was what, there was an incredible wisdom in it. And it, 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 it sort of like without control, without knowing what we were doing, you know, this sort of like weeks, months long process sort of ended in this crescendo that was just this incredible, what you'd call peak experience, you know? And then it was like, well, I don't need to do that nearly as much now. And like, this was something I didn't know. I didn't know anything about. I didn't have an agenda about it. I just, you know, we just followed curiosity and it became this thing that was amazing. Um, I learned more as I did. I went and I started reading and trying to look because I was fascinated by it. Um, but, and it would have been useful to have people, elders to speak to about it, I think. But even without that, um, it there is a certain degree to which we have to allow people to find their own way. Right, right. And Nate and Brian, thank you so much for the space for this conversation, because that's what I'm walking is the tightrope, is prudent respect for recreational use that allows the, you know, dare I say, underground community of friends creating a sacred space where it's not managed by big pharma or even organizations that say this is how you have to do it. Mm-hmm. And without sounding irreverent or disrespectful or anarchist, it's like, fuck that. Like people know when they're at a Grateful Dead concert or at a show or doing something, they're taking care of each other. Or if you go into the woods with your buddy and camp out, you're not attempting to like disrespect anything. As you alluded to, there's a natural sense of compassion and regard for these substances. And, you know, someone might say contrary to what I say, but it doesn't need to be policed or organized in a therapeutic setting every day with a blindfold and, oh, it's the only way. That's not the golden road. And I would say, listen to your heart, listen to the group of people, find the integrity and make sure you feel safe. Absolutely. It's really a great question. It's a great statement. I like that. Brian, is there anything else that we haven't asked you already that, that, you feel like you'd like to mention or talk about? Well, I think this is an amazing conversation that fosters the whole, the depth of this work and the gratitude to keep holding space that you gentlemen are providing is remarkable to be curious. And I think ultimately it 
never being afraid or shameful of what you're interested in is really what I want to talk about as closing is that advocacy of transparent authenticity, being safe and comfortable to have difficult conversations, be vulnerable. And, you know, I often say be gentle with yourself just in closing. These aren't things that we even, we're at the very beginning of understanding this. I know culturally speaking and in our civilization, understanding it, we have to be very prudent with what we think we know and what we're hoping to gain from these. Continue to have these forums. It's really remarkable what you two are doing. Yeah. Well, it's been great to have you, Ryan. I really appreciate your heart, your humility, your respect for this work. It really comes through in our conversation today and, and your, your book and other, other interviews I've listened with you. Uh, I, I really, pre you know, I'm grateful for your being uh, one of the folks who are helping to pave the way and help, help be, you know, leaders in this community. And uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Nate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is a really fun um, conversation. Um, I enjoyed it a great deal. And you know, I asked you a question at the beginning before we were on the air. Uh, could, and the reason I ask is because it's sort of like there's a, a dividing line here between Brian and I, you know, Dave Matthews versus Grateful Dead. Um, and uh, <laughs> you hedged the question nicely initially. <laughs> well, I would say, um, you know, on further review, uh, one of my earliest memories was I left um, and told the story of sleeping over at someone's house to see Jerry and the Grateful Dead's last concert at Soldier Field. Um, and so one of the, I, I'd have to lean towards, you know, the dead, dead and company is pretty sweet, but when you're in a jam and that's where we might have to have a whole nother podcast of just the appropriate use of recreational substances in the context of rock and roll music. Who knows? We could go, we could, we could pretend and talk about something esoteric and then just start talking about And then just rap about music. Absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. Well, with, with that, you know, thank you very much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. And please, I appreciate the movement you guys are doing and never hesitate to reach out. You bet. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.